Uh, the last time that we were in Second Peter, uh, we studied uh, the early part of chapter 3, um, and, and Peter really is wrapping up not just uh, this letter, but his uh, two-volume uh, uh, set that he has um, been writing to us uh, about what it means to be a Christian in difficult times, uh, what it means to endure suffering, and also um, in the second book, he's dealt more specifically with, uh, with, with uh, dealing with, with false teachers and dealing with different um, agendas that may exist in and around the church and how we as Christians need to be grounded and rooted and, um, and, and protected by the truth um, and how that might prepare us and equip us for, um, for whatever season that we might find ourselves in as we're still called to do ministry, even when it's not that easy. Um, we began to talk last time about the end game, about the end days, uh, about the goal that we're working towards um, and, and, and how God has been preparing us for and building towards this. Really, the entire universe has been building towards this for generations. Um, since the fall, this has been the goal. Um, this has been what God has been planning and building and preparing around. Um, and Peter has begun to kind of tease that out um, in chapter 3 for us. And, and among other writers, Peter um, is one that refers to this, not, not a specific day, as it may allude, as the name may allude to, but uh, Peter refers to the end days or the end times or the events that will roll out in the latter days. He refers to them under the banner of the day of the Lord. Now, this is used by um, New Testament and Old Testament prophets and apostles um, as kind of the catch-all phrase for the last days. Um, we don't find the word rapture in the Bible. Uh, we, we don't find the word the tribulation uh, or the phrase the tribulation period in, in the proper sense that we often use. Uh, we don't find uh, many of the words that we use for the end days in the Bible, but we do find this phrase, the day of the Lord, which refers to, um, again, not of just a day, an hour, but it refers to kind of a season. It refers to kind of an era that will exist in the, uh, as God kind of works things or wraps things up on this side and, and, and gets things ready for what's next. Um, Peter writes uh, to get our attention, um, and, he, and he told us back in the first few verses, I think verse number one, he says, I write to stir you up. Um, now, we've all stirred up something before, right? Some of you, um, you stir up something um, with your words, right? You've done that before. Uh, we know um, how to get people riled up, and maybe we've been that person in the past. Of course, none of you have ever done this recently, but before you were a Christian, I'm sure you um, kind of entered some conversations that you probably should have stayed out of, and uh, through a little bit of gossiping and a little bit of, 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 of he said, she said, you stirred some stuff up, right? Now, you've never, you haven't done that lately, and that's good, but don't, don't do it um, anytime soon. But you know what that can do, the damage it can cause, the drama it can start. Um, you also have stirred up uh, maybe a cake mix before that's the better kind of stirring up. So Peter is doing a little bit of both, right? Um, he's, get, he, he's saying, uh, trying to get us, get our attention with words, and he's stirring us up in our spirits, um, that we would not forget what our destiny is. Um, we can relate to Peter's warning um, that he says, and of course, scoffers will come, um, and there will be those that doubt and, and, spe and speculate whether or not that, the, uh, that God truly is working in and around our world for something bigger and better and planning and working towards something beyond. Uh, Peter says, hey, there will be scoffers that will come, and of course, maybe we ourselves have been those scoffers. Uh, we've doubted and we've wondered if God is really um, uh, sovereign in our lives. We've wondered if God is really uh, working our, in our midst. And maybe you've wondered, is God really planning for something beyond this life? And, and here's how I know that we've, we've been in this role before. Maybe you've never doubted that God is up to something. Maybe you've never doubted that God is planning something. But I bet 
at sometimes you've wondered if it's got your best interest in mind. I bet there have been times when you hear about the end days and you hear about prophecy and plans and charts and all these theories. I'm sure you've stepped back and wonder, how do I fit into this? And how can I know, how can I know what's next is better than what's now? And how can I know that what's next is worth living for when I'm trying my best to make what's now the best it can be? And how can I know that putting my investments in and working up for and and planning for, how can I know that God has something better planned for me than I could ever plan for myself? How can I know that there's something to look forward to? How can I know there's something to be excited about when we talk about eternity? So again, that doesn't put us in the scoffer category or the doubter category, but it does put us in the category of skeptic, doesn't it? That, that category that maybe when prophecy gets brought up and when people start talking about heaven and hell and the end times, maybe you get a little bit sheepish and a little bit kind of you know, on the edge of your seat because you just don't know if that's something you want to hear about. Or you don't know if that's something that's going to be good for you. And of course, we know that it's good for us, but again, in our flesh, we still doubt what we don't know and we worry about what we don't know all about. We've said, like verse 4 quotes some of the scoffers, we've said, hey, where is this promise? And maybe we've wondered, well, I've heard it all my life and how, can I, how should I expect and how should I know that it's actually going to happen? There are many prophecies concerning the day of the Lord and the coming of the Lord. A lot of them confront how we consider the universe to be unchanging. And this is what I want to talk about for just a minute. A lot of times, um, we um, work around the clock based on the way we understand the universe to be, right? And, you know, we in our sophisticated society, we know how to, you know, we, have, we can move the clock forward, right, an hour to get more daylight, right, and to get the sales, get the stores open longer and all that stuff. You know, we, we kind of feel like we kind of know how the universe works. We know when the sun comes up. We know when the sun goes down. We know when it's going to rain. We know when it's not going to rain. We know when we should prepare for, and we know when we should plan for. We are so smart, aren't we? Right? We are so, you know, we have so many, uh, you know, uh, t- views that we can, you know, windows that we can look through. We have so many avenues that we can plug into. We are never caught off guard when it comes to how the universe works, right? We know when a meteor is thousands of years away, right? Have you remember you've hearing those stories before? Well, if in 2055, there's a meteor that's going to get really close to Earth, right? And for a minute, you worry, right? How old am I going to be? You know, I'm 28 now. It's 2019, so 30. So 30 plus, you know, I'll be alive and maybe I won't be alive after that hits us. So, you know, maybe you've done that before like me, right? And you you hear all the wise and the smart people talk about how the universe does this and how this and there's water on Mars and we are so smart and we know how the universe works. We are as enlightened as enlightened people can be. And maybe that has made us a little bit numb and a little bit cold to the fact that this is God's universe. And of course, he has set things in motion. Of course, he has established laws and principles and he has put gravity into existence and he you know, created inertia and he created the universe and all the systems and all the, 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 the scientific facts, right? He's the reason why there are books that you can stack up from here to, to the sun and back, right? That detail and explain the smallest of cells to the largest of supernovas, right? He's the reason why there are biology books that you know written on every part of the body, right? And every uh, part of, of the human anatomy. He's the reason why there are so many wonderful uh, you know, uh, discoveries that have been made about, you know, from bugs to, to stars, right? He's the reason. He gets glory from that, right? He's not afraid of science. He loves science. He loves when somebody discovers something else about his universe. 
But God forbid we forget. It's his universe, right? And sometimes we take for granted the sun's going to come up at about six or seven, right? The sun's going to go down. We take for granted that we're so smart, don't we? We take for granted that we can always check the weather within a you know, touch of a button on our phone. And I think that we, when we think about how the universe is unchanging and we think about how self-sufficient we are, many of the prophecies in the, prophecies in the Old Testament in their day and age had a very specific kind of ooh and ah uh, uh, kind of agenda. But in our day and age, I think they remind us that as we are in God's universe, one day when all of a sudden he begins to turn things in a different direction, he begins to wrap things up as to what his plans were for this, for this earth and this universe. One day he's going to make it very clear to us that this is his. And yes, there have been laws and discoveries and things that have been in place, but there may be a time when some of the things that we have always considered, we have thought will always have been that way and always will be that way, there may be a time when those things begin to be a little bit different and those things begin to shift and, and, and take a different direction. And I think the reason we often forget this, uh, and we often forget that before Genesis 1, the law, before the laws of the universe were set in motion, there was God, right? Before there was a sun, before there was a moon, before there were stars, there was God. And He is greater and, and sovereign over our universe, and ultimately, it is coming back to Him. A very famous passage of Scripture that speaks about the day of the Lord is found in the prophet Joel. I mentioned this this morning. But listen to what Joel says and how he kind of talks about the end times and the end days. God says, I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. And here's what Joel is trying to say, or God's trying to say to Joel. God is going to do some, 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 some uh, supernatural works among the natural. That God is going to step into our nature into our world and get our attention by pulling the strings of the systems he's put in place by pulling the strings of the laws of the universe by doing things that may not have an explanation behind them if only to get our attention and remind us that he's the creator and he can step into the, the universe at any time and make things different or make things do a certain thing if he wants to because he wants to get our attention I think we need to, that's a good place to be and a good place to kind of dwell at is to know that, yeah, this is what science says and this is what the law says, but of course God is sovereign over those things. And here's what Joel says in that next verse. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And here's what he's trying to say. That when that day comes, God is going to step into time and he may alter what we expect he may do things to get our attention to show us maybe there's something greater than the sun. Maybe there's something that controls the way of life and our way of life beyond the sun, the moon, the stars. To get the attention of those of us that have forgotten. And it's so easy to forget. This is all working for our good. Here's what Joel says in the next verse. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So what is God's intention in doing those things? To save people, right? Not to judge people. Right? That's why I have a big problem when everybody, when, anytime anything happens in nature, uh, people say, well, that's, that's God bringing judgment. That is not a biblical thing. It's not a biblical thing. God would do things to Israel and do things through Israel to show them who He was and how He was going to be protect them. But there's not a sign in the Old Testament or in the New Testament where God works in nature to judge people. He always works in nature to save people. 
So we need to be careful how we always point to this hurricane and that storm and this flood and say, well, that's what... There, that is not a precedent. Of course, there's the flood of Noah, but a specific agenda, a specific thing like that is not telling to how God works in and around the universe throughout time. As the scripture says, he steps into time to save people. And of course, even the flood saved those on the boat. So we need to be careful how we often point fingers and not realize what God is actually up to, which is to save many lives. This is all working for our good. Transitioning to and preparing for the next age, the final and forever state of sinlessness and eternal life. In our text tonight, Peter is going to address the weight. His message initially is to help bring perspective to and how we understand time compared to how God does and how God uh, operates uh, apart from time. And from there he teaches how God is making use of time and how we ought for, to ourselves. So if you would look at verse number 8, this is a verse that often gets pulled out of context. Uh, that A lot of people can uh, bring a lot of theories and speculation as to what this means um, and brings a lot of chatter across the board. But I want to kind of stay in the text tonight as to what this is trying to say to us. Um, Peter says in verse 8, Beloved, do not forget this one thing. And that phrase in Greek means, do not let this escape your attention. Or do not shut your eyes as it is so easy to. By nature, you'll miss this. It may be foreign to you. But he says, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. Now, a lot of people take this and go to Genesis and say, does that mean that the, week, the creation week is a thousand, you know, actually the thousand plus times six? We do a lot of crazy things with this verse. I think this verse is simply trying to get us to understand that we process time differently than God does. And in fact, God exists outside of time. Time is a construct of God. It will not last forever. Now, that might be hard to wrap our brains around because our brains are finite. Our brains operate based on the time that we've been given to live. So this may be very, very hard for us to process. I promise we won't spend too much time on it. But God exists outside of time. God does not exist in the parameters that we exist in. Here's what I mean by that. Time has a beginning. That back in Genesis chapter 1... In the beginning was God, right? Way in the, and beyond God existed. And then God created. On the first day, He created right light. And there was evening and there was morning. And it was the first day. So God hung a clock on the wall in this new place called Earth. This new place called the Milky Way Galaxy. In this new universe that He created for people. God had a clock on the wall. And He set the time. And since it was evening first, the Jews believed that the day, the day actually started, starts at 6 p.m. So we'll just assume that He started the clock at 6 p.m. I don't know if He did that. It doesn't matter. But they didn't have English, speak English. So who knows what they actually called it. But um, God set a clock. And this clock is going to spin and 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 one day it's going to stop. Right? Time started and time is going to end. We don't know when the clock started. We don't know when it's going to stop. But just as it started, it's going to stop. Time is finite. See, this makes Jesus' conversation, and the Bible is talk about eternal life and everlasting life, more important than we realize. Because here's what I mean. 
We only know timed life. Life with a beginning and with an end. We only can comprehend and understand life in the idea of it being timed. We know that life started and life ended. If I ask you what happened before you were born, you can only tell me what you've heard because you didn't see it for yourself, right? And you never will. And you can't, once you're gone, you won't be able to tell what happened after you're gone because you only comprehend timed life. But God knows and God exists in eternal life. There's a distinction in the Bible between life and eternal life. That eternal is not insignificant. And salvation brings us into this new reality. Think about this. God has always existed. And when He created earth and our universe with a sun, a moon, and stars, what are those very important for? To keep time, right? Specifically the sun. But one day, all things will flow into eternity. And maybe you've never thought about this. But consider what Revelation tells us about eternity. I saw a new heaven, a new earth. The first heaven, first earth had passed away. Guess what? Time stopped. The old came to an end. And John sees the new. And, and this is so amazing. Look, look, listen to how he describes the new. And the city had no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. And by its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring the glory in, their glory into it, and its gates will never shut by day. There will be no night there. Now, we make a big deal about there being no gates because there's peace, and there being no uh, moon, sun because it never gets dark, but what are also the implications of there being no sun? There's no time. Right? Wow, right? There's no time. Because time has ended, and timed life is over, and eternal life is the new normal for us all. Emphasis, we're moving into a realm that operates differently, free from restrictions that we know and are held back by. While this might not change everything now, it can help us know that our restrictions aren't forever. That in Christ we are already, we've already tasted the first fruits of this new way of life. So we can start preparing for this new way of living. Here's what Jesus said in John 5. Truly I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has what kind of life? eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. So you are no longer defined by, or destined by, or stuck in this short, finite reality. You have already stepped into life that is forever, life that is eternal. So what does this look like? Well, that's why the Bible isn't just a three by five. Right? Because if, if all we needed to know was how to get saved, the Bible would just be a page. Right? And it would be in large print so we could all could see. It would be John 3.16, right? And there would be no need for anything else. That's why the revelation of God is deep and wide, cover to cover. We are given insight about how to live, how to reach our true potential, how to see as God sees, and are given distinction between what is of the flesh and what is of the Spirit, what is sinful and what is full of life. 
Our time on earth is limited, but our life beyond is eternal. And of course, we will spend eternity somewhere. Everybody spends eternity somewhere. Everybody lives forever somewhere. Jesus makes this clear over and over again. Matthew 25, for example, the lost will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. What's the qualifier? Eternal. Because eternal stands in contrast to timed. Either way, the emphasis is on eternal. Torment versus life. We will step beyond the finite into the infinite. We will cross into eternity, which has always been and always will be. We, by nature, draw a large chasm between now and next. But what if the divide isn't as great after all? And come on, this life is so fragile. It's so temporal. One slight tear and whiff, it's gone, isn't it? Just up the road a bit from Lindsay and I on the way home last night from celebrating the birth of our new niece. The road was closed because a car had went off the bank and three people like that died in the awful storm. Life is so fragile. A slight tear in this reality and it's over. But it's not the end. Once this life comes to an end on this side, once time stops, immediately we step into eternity. Jesus told that famous story about a rich man and a poor man. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. Immediately. As in, he closed his eyes here and he opened his eyes and there he was. He exited time and he entered eternity. The rich man also died and was buried. And in hell, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes. So notice that in hell, he retained his senses. He could feel the torment. He could see the contrast between good and bad. He knew where he was. And he remembered who he had been. Think about what that means. If eternity is just a blink of an eye away, we ought to pause and give sober and serious thought to what's next. Shouldn't we? The next verse builds off of this sacred thought to why, while it may seem like God is delayed and while He doesn't have a, a, a definite plan, this, verse t- this next verse reminds us that He knows what He's doing. Verse 9, the Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So notice what this promise is from God. God has given life to all and has provided salvation for all, and He's waiting for all to come. The first two speak of His goodness, but the last one punctuates and underscores His goodness at the same time. I mean, how good is He? He has given life to all. He has provided salvation to all when they messed up. And all the more, He's waiting for all to come. 
He does not owe us the patience. We don't deserve the patience, but He gives, He provides, and He waits, and He waits, and He waits, and He knocks, and He pursues, and He never gives up, and He never lets go. That explains why God allows sin to persist. Because He allows sinners to persist. Right? I mean, this verse answers so many questions. While God doesn't uphold any sin, He holds up every sinner. Isn't isn't that true? Isn't that the only logical way of understanding this? Because if sin does what sin is going to do, if sin does what sin does, it destroys, it kills, it condemns. So the only mercy for a sinner is God holding them up. Right? I mean, God's already given us a warning of hell and a promise of heaven, but He says in verse 9, He is not slack concerning His promise to judge or save as some would count or measure slackness. He is patient that all might be saved. So He never upholds sin, but you can bet He upholds and holds up every sinner. Now that makes you uncomfortable, doesn't it? But it might also comfort you. While that might grieve us when we're the ones offended, it relieves us when we're the offenders. See, when I talk about how God upholds every sinner, that makes a couple of us kind of get a little bit puffy and stuffy because I, you know, I don't know how I feel about you telling me that God holds up sinners. Do you know what they're doing? I know exactly what they're doing, and God knows better than, what I, than I know, and He knows better than what you know. <laughs> and that might grieve us when we're the ones offended. But doesn't it relieve you when you're the offender? I mean, hey, we're quick to judge those when they're guilty, but when we're guilty, woohoo, please, mercy, can you just give me one more chance? And I know, of course, your sin isn't as bad as their sin, and hey, I know that you, know, you would never think, you would never catch me doing the stuff that you catch those people doing, but listen, if God upholds me, He upholds them, and I might be relieved, but I also should be thankful that He's not judged them yet, right? Because if I want to measure the same, if I want to measure right, I ought to be equally in how I measure out. And if I want mercy, I better pray for God to give them mercy. If I want grace, I better pray for God to give them grace. And if I have a problem with that, I better reread and restudy and re-understand who God is because God is a God who is not slack, but is patient. And it would do us good to learn a little patience and learn a little grace. While this may not make the hurt of being sinned any any better, uh, being sinned against any better, It does, and it should bring us to a place of awe and marvel before a God who is holy yet loves the unholy. We may have trouble understanding how God allows injustice to persist. Think about this. You have a problem, and you have a hard time accepting God, accepting them, and you're not even holy. Right? See, we get up in arms when somebody says, well, you know what, you know, whenever we defend someone who's sinning, we get up in arms because, hey, you shouldn't take up for them. They're guilty. And we're not even holy. We act like we are. We act sanctimonious, right? And we're not even a bit holy at all, right? And yet God, who is holy, is the one who's defending the unholy. Isn't that amazing? He is holy, and nothing in the universe gives Him what He deserves. 
Can you imagine that? Nothing in this universe gives him the glory and the praise he is worthy of. Yet he still loves us and favors us and rejoices over us. Do you get that? There's this episode in the Gospels that John had the privilege of sharing with us. John is observing Jesus, and this is not something Jesus said. This is something Jesus was thinking. And you know, it's so strange. Most of the time, it's Jesus who's reading people's mind. But John, through inspiration, got a chance to read Jesus' mind. Listen to this. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world of the Father, so Jesus is sitting there, and John's beside him, laying his head on his shoulder or whatever, resting because he's had a long day. And Jesus is just thinking, wow, I'm about to blow this joint, right? All these ungrateful, sinful people I've had to spend my time with, and I'm smelling all their nasty feet because I've got to wash them. They smell. It's awful, awful. Nobody, these guys don't know how to cook. They don't even say thank you. They're awful people, but I love them anyway. He's sitting there at this table, and he's thinking, I'm about to be on the throne. Wow, I cannot wait. So he's just thinking about this. And you don't know what it was like to think about that because we'll never think about that stuff, right? And if we think about that stuff, we've got a pretty big ego, so we better watch out. But Jesus could, right? And he did. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And and the Greek there, it could also be translated, he showed them the full measure of his love in a way he had never before. So Jesus is sitting there. Judas over here. You know, he's got jokers on his left. And what is the song? Uh, I don't know what the song is, but he's got people. He's got Peter on one side going to deny him, Judas on one side going to betray him, right? And Jesus is in there thinking, man, I really know how to pick them. Uh, these guys are going to bl- blow everything I've built up. They're going to just waste it away. But his initial reaction to all that, Judas about to betray him, Peter about to deny him, all the guys about to run, is I want to show them how much I love them one more time. See, we can't comprehend that because we're not that, we're not that good. <laughs> and it goes on to say that Jesus, knowing that, he, that the Father had given him all things and that he had come from God and was going back to God. Jesus, knowing he had all the power in the universe, he had all the power in the room. He was the most powerful man in the room and it dawned on him that he could do whatever he wanted. He could get whatever he wanted. He had all power and authority so what do you do when it dawns on you that you're large and in charge i'll tell you what jesus did he got up from supper he laid aside his outer garments he took a towel tied it around his waist and started washing their feet you wouldn't do that nobody would especially whenever you know who you are and know where you're going and know what all of, it, uh, all of it means and you know who's around you and what they're not worthy of. Jesus, knowing all things, knowing where He was going, knowing where He came from, loved them to the very end. He got up, took His towel around His waist, and He got on His knees and He served them because that's how good, how pure, and how loving our God is. And even though the universe never gives him what he deserves, he gives us what we don't deserve. That is grace and mercy. But let me say this. Be it known, there is coming a day when God will get what he deserves. And ready or not, 
All things will roll out as he has planned. They always will and always would. The focus is not going to be about us. We have been the center of attention for far past our deserving point. He has served us and loved us long beyond what we could have ever deserved. And there's coming a day when Jesus will rightfully get what He deserves. And every knee will bow. And every tongue will confess that He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And if those, are, if those who are in Him, they will enter everlasting life and those who are lost will enter everlasting torment. And the song for eternity will be to Him who sits on the throne, to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever and ever. And it will always be about Him for always and forever forward. Verse 10 says, This day will come as a thief in the night, which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in them will be burned up. And we're left with a very sober, sobering reflection. Verse 11 through 13. Therefore, since all things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, the elements will melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to His promises, look for new heavens and new earth, in a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So Peter leaves us with this thought. What sort of people ought Christians be? And he gives us two very simple yet powerful Guidelines. We should be holy and we should be godly. Those might seem like they're the same thing, but they actually aren't. We're called to be holy and godly. We're called to be set apart and Christ-like. So I've got to ask you two questions as we close. What are you set apart from the world to do for the glory of God? That's what holiness means, set apart. What do you do every day? How do you live every day that, set, that shows that you are set apart for a greater cause, for a greater king, for a greater kingdom? If that's, not, if that's a question you can't answer pretty quickly, we need to do some talking, or you and Jesus need to do some talking. How are you set apart? How are you holy unto the Lord every single day? And how are you Christ-like in the world? So, while we're called to be set apart, how are you also, as you are in the world, how are you Christ-like to those that you're around? Now, this ought to be, this is even more serious, because if this isn't answered quickly, then we've got bigger problems. How are you showing people Jesus in your life and in your world? We're called to prepare and point towards what's next. We aren't wasting our life we're called to worship with our lives. I had a few more points, but I think that's an appropriate place to close and appropriate questions to leave us considering. How are you set apart? How are you being Christ-like? 
in your world, in your lives. Now listen, if, uh, we've talked about a lot tonight. We've talked about a whole lot of stuff all over the place. But ultimately, this all brings us, all, all this points us to Jesus. This is his universe. This is his world. <laughs> We're just blessed to be a part of it, aren't we? And how gracious is he that every day, as it continues to spin, and as he could very well say, ah, stop it. We're done here. Something in his heart says, you know what? I think it needs to go on a little longer. Because I love him. And they don't love me all the time. But I need one more day to show them how much I love them. I need one more day to pour out my love and my goodness to them so that we might be ready for eternity where we can pour out our praise to Him. Are you ready? Because time might stop for you before it stops for me. And time might stop for me before it stops for any of you. And time might stop for all of us at the same time. Are you ready? Are you set apart? Are you Christ-like? If you, if you can answer those questions, you're, you're, you're on the road to being ready. But if you can't, and even if you can, I think this is worth some prayerful thought tonight. Father, I love you. God, we had a lot to talk about tonight, and I hope in my own feeble effort, we've been able to bring our attention to this place of reverence and awe around you. God, this is your universe. This is your world. This is your kingdom. God, we're so fortunate. We're so blessed to have a part in it. We know where it's going. And God, we're fortunate to be a part of where it's going. God, I pray that we might consider just how we fit in and just how gracious you have been to us. And I pray that we might get asked these questions tonight. Are we set apart? Are we being Christ-like? Are we showing the world around us about the God within us and the God we're headed towards? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.